0: In a typical election year, votes are counted, a candidate is projected to win, the losing candidate concedes, and there you have it, a presidential transition begins. This year, though, things are different. On Saturday, it became clear that Joe Biden had won the election and would become the 46th president of the United States. President Trump, though, has refused to concede. He's repeatedly and falsely alleged voter fraud and launched several lawsuits to contest the results, most of which have failed. Trump's appointees and allies have since supported his refusal to initiate a peaceful transfer of power. The White House has instructed government agencies to block cooperation with the Biden transition team. A Trump appointee at the General Services Administration has refused to sign paperwork that releases millions in pre-allocated dollars to fund the transition. That paperwork also gives Biden's team access to agency officials and information. And some of that information is key to our national security. Many experts in public service have expressed concern that these unprecedented moves by the president threaten our country's safety by denying Biden resources, intelligence, and other important information to make his transition smoothly. So how much is at risk when a president-elect doesn't get the intelligence, funds, and information he needs? How does this protracted transition alter the country's position on the global stage? And once the election results are certified, will Trump's actions... Change? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, I talk to Shane Harris, national security reporter at The Post, about the ways Trump's blocking of the formal transition process can harm our nation's safety, But before I spoke to Shane, I looked back to an interview I did with David Marchik back in September, in anticipation of where we find ourselves today. As the director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service, David knows the ins and outs of presidential transitions quite well. So I asked him exactly how the transition process normally works.
1: So there are three constituencies that are really key. There's the White House. Then there's a group of agencies that are led by the Office of Management and Budget and the GSA, the General Service Administration. And then third is, obviously, the candidate has a transition team. And in this case, Vice President Biden has appointed his transition team, and they're working
0: hard. What needs to formally change hands or be turned over in order for this process to go smoothly?
1: So there are multiple things that need to change. The biggest is personnel. A new president has to appoint 4,000 political officials, 1,250 need be confirmed by the Senate. And that process takes a long time. So I'll give you one data point. President Obama had the fastest and smoothest transition to power, not only because he was well organized, but also because George W. Bush did a really good job handing over power to Obama. Of the 1,250 Senate confirmed positions, at day 100, Obama only had 69 confirmed. 69. And by the end of the full year, he had less than a third of of all the positions confirmed. So it takes a long time to staff a government. If you take the non-Senate confirmed positions, there are about 4,000 total. Obama had about 2,100 in place at the end of year one. So even though he had the best transition launch ever, he still only had half the government in place by year one. We're now in a pandemic. We have a deep economic crisis. We have a social crisis. And we have a political crisis. And so should Vice President Biden win he needs to hit the ground running on day one.
0: So it's not just about personnel changes, though. Certainly other things must be handed over in order for this to go smoothly.
1: Yes. Obviously, there's a huge national national security component of this. There's a huge policy component. Typically, a new president will issue a whole suite of executive orders on January 20th. They will change their ethics plan. They will change the entire approach to
0: government. You mentioned a national security component. One thing an incoming president needs is knowledge about the national security threats facing this country. Are there circumstances where a president might not receive the intelligence he needs or or are there safeguards to ensure that he does?
1: So the law does outline a whole set of requirements for uh, national security related issues in a transition, including access to intelligence agencies. The the access to security clearances pre-election is really important. That way, should there be a change in administration the day after the election, typically the challenger will send three, four or five hundred people into the agencies. And that includes sending people with security clearances into the national security agencies. So I'll give you an example. When President Obama won in 2008, he sent 349 officials into 62 agencies and around half of those officials had security clearances. President Trump. When he won, he sent a slightly smaller amount in the 300s to 42 agencies. And again, about half of those officials had security clearances. The intelligence agencies, the Defense Department, the National Security Agencies, it's been an area of non-partisanship. It's an area where people take continuity of power very, very seriously. And elections are tough, but transitions traditionally are executed clearly and in a non-partisan manner.
0: So remember I said that I talked to David back in September? Things have obviously changed since then, and this transition so far is anything but traditional. But before I get to that, I wanted to highlight one more piece of my conversation with David. National security was part of what Congress was trying to protect back in 1963 when they passed the Presidential Transition Act. That law helped codify the process of the transition from one president to the next. It lays out rules for allocating resources, funds— timelines, and training for the incoming administration. The idea to make sure the president was fully prepared to handle security issues from day one, David said, that actually emerged earlier, during World War II.
1: Obviously, you go back to FDR, and when he died, Harry Truman took over. Harry Truman was kept totally in the dark. And about 100 days after Truman took office, he made the fateful decision to drop a nuclear bomb on Japan to end the war. And so when Truman left office, he tried to get both Eisenhower and Stevenson to think about transition planning, to meet with him, to start the process because Truman felt like Roosevelt kept him in the dark, and he didn't want the next president to be kept in the dark the same way. And so that led to a whole series of discussions, which led to the legislation in 1963.
0: And how has that legislation since evolved?
1: So the legislation has been improved three or four times. For example, after the disputed election in 2000 between Bush v. Gore, that transition was shortened from 75 days to around 37 days. And The decision was made that the challenger at the time, George W. Bush, would not benefit from all the transition services, access to space, access to computers, access to security clearances, until the Supreme Court ruled. So Congress passed legislation after that disputed election that basically mandated that the challenger in a disputed election should benefit from all those services. Another example is post 9-11. George W. Bush came into office, he had a shortened transition, and eight months later, Obviously, two planes hit the Twin Towers, one of the worst days in American history. The 9-11 Commission report, when they did their autopsy on what happened on 9-11, found that Bush didn't have all his people in place. And one of the reasons he didn't have all his people in place was because those people didn't have security clearances. And so they mandated that the FBI grant security clearances to challengers' campaigns even before the election. And so that's another example of how the transition law has improved. I'll give you one third example, which is really important. The law was actually amended earlier this year and signed. And the key change in that law was two words, the words career officials. So the legislation was amended this year to mandate that career officials in the agencies are leadership. They're in charge of transition planning. And that's a very important legislative change as well.
0: So the laws guiding the transition process have evolved, but it still helps if a sitting president believes the process should go smoothly. Since losing the election last week, Trump has refused not only to concede, but also to participate in the transition process. That refusal is having repercussions for Biden's next moves and could have impacts for the security of the country. To find out more about those repercussions, I turn to Washington Post national security reporter Shane Harris. Governance experts have said that the nation is at its most vulnerable state during the transition period. What makes this period unique in terms of national security?
2: Well, a couple things. I mean, one is that the transition itself is not actually proceeding as a normal transition would, which is to say that the president hasn't really cooperated with it. Of course, he hasn't even conceded the election. And the General Services Administration, which kind of has to fire the starting pistol to allow all of these agency teams on the Biden transition to start meeting with their counterparts in government. That hasn't happened either. So there's that. We're in the midst of a pandemic, which is clearly a national security crisis. So there's the the, the imperative for the new incoming team to meet with the old ones and figure out you know, what they're doing or what they're not. And then we have sort of the added complication of, you know, what's the president going to do when he leaves? And is he going to start declassifying things that he knows, or is he gonna try and declassify information even before he leaves that he thinks will be beneficial to him politically? So all of this is kind of combining to make this a really unusual, I, I think dare say unprecedented transition.
0: But normally in a transition period, there is some vulnerability baked in to the American system, right, in terms of national security? What normally exists in that regard?
2: Normally in a transition, it's the period where a lot of people in national security positions fear that a foreign country might try to take advantage of the kind of flux that's going on as the old crew is leaving and a new one is coming in. There are some people who will point out that in other governments as well, when there's a transition of power, that's a time where it might be uniquely vulnerable to a terrorist attack or some kind of intervention from an adversary. And really your own political system is kind of, you know, I guess unstable is one way of thinking about it. That's maybe a little less so with this incoming Biden team because they were just there four years ago and they're pretty deeply experienced. But there's always in this period of change where the baton is kind of being handed off. It's a time where the government is perhaps Focused on that transition, a little less maybe on other priorities. And there's kind of just a natural sense of being having to do two things at once. Of course, that transition is not really happening right now. So that may not be as applicable.
0: Are there protocols in place to kind of protect against some of those vulnerabilities or reduce them, minimize them as much as possible?
2: Insofar as there are teams that are dedicated to doing just transition, yes. So, like within the the military and the national security agencies, there are people whose job is just to handle the transition. And ideally, the leaders of these agencies will designate a group of people to interact with the new incoming team so that there's no distractions when it moves smoothly. And obviously people are more on guard because, as I said, it's a time of natural transition and flux. But that's ideally how it would work. Is such that you also have people getting up to speed on what all of the protocols and procedures are existing right now so that when they hit the ground on day one, it's not that they're just learning things for the first time. Now, at the same time, there's also a career... Military, intelligence, and national security workforce, which is the vast majority of people who work in those agencies, and they will stay into a new administration. Those are career people who don't just leave with the old administration. So that residual kind of knowledge is all there, and they just kind of keep working as normal.
0: So you've just explained how it would work ideally, as you put it. Clearly, what's happening now is not exactly ideal. The Post reported this week that a Trump administration appointee, the head of the General Services Administration, is refusing to sign a letter that would allow President elect Joe Biden. Transition team to formally begin its work. What real implications does that have, both generally and then specifically in reference to national security?
2: Well, generally, what it means is I mean, a couple things. One is that because the transition hasn't begun, the government is, in the Trump administration, is not conveying to the public that it believes the incoming administration is legitimate. It hasn't really conferred upon it yet that status that we always expect a president to do when he's lost election. On a practical level, what it means is that there are hundreds of people in the Biden transition whose job it is to go into those agencies, learn how they work, get up to speed, And they're simply not having those meetings. I mean, they can talk to people in Congress, they can talk to people informally who they might know in some of these agencies, and plenty of people on the Biden team will know people in in the agencies. But they can't sit down and do the actual work of transition that's become this kind of repeated, consistent process over the years where you make sure there are no hiccups as you're handing off power from one to the other. So that's not happening. And on the national security side, what it means is the incoming Biden team, for instance, doesn't know what covert actions the CIA is engaged in. It may not have the most recent information on forces that are deployed, Uh, into world hotspots. It may not have the most recent information on, for instance, what China is up to. I mean, we just saw some really dramatic developments this week in Hong Kong with pro-democracy lawmakers essentially being silenced. There's concern that China might try some kind of acquisition of territory from Taiwan during the transition in this vulnerability we've talked about. The Biden team's not really getting the latest information on what the military knows about that. So it's risky because when they hit the ground running on January 20th, you don't want them to get in there and have to start from standing still. And that's the risk that we have when the transition teams aren't talking to one another.
0: And normally, Biden would be getting that information from the presidential daily briefing, right? Can you explain what he would be learning from that briefing specifically?
2: Normally, Joe Biden would be getting essentially the same daily intelligence briefing that President Trump is getting now. So he would be getting access to all of the classified information and the products that go along with that. This would be his opportunity to start getting the really detailed sense of things in the lay of the land and also starting to understand what issues were most important to the intelligence community, to the Trump administration now. He would have the benefit of saying, okay, here's where we see the hot spots. Because he's not getting that briefing, he effectively has to rely on what he can get from open sources and his own knowledge of foreign affairs and national security issues, which is considerable. I mean, he was vice president for eight years and he served as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. But because he's not getting that briefing book, he's not really getting his finger on the pulse of what the intelligence community thinks the president needs to know every day.
0: Could an unprepared president-elect in and of himself be a national security risk by not knowing the pieces of the puzzle that he needs to know on day one? And I ask that because are there ways that the intelligence community could have a legal basis to circumvent the ongoing transition, kind of just give the president-elect the information that he needs?
2: So to your first question, is he a risk? I think it's a larger systemic risk when you have a commander-in-chief that's not being brought up to speed quickly. Now, that can be remedied pretty fast. If there is something urgent and highly sensitive that's not been made public that he needs to know that he doesn't know, you could imagine them basically pulling him aside shortly after the inauguration and briefing him very quickly. That's not ideal. You want him to know beforehand. Could the intelligence community circumvent and go around and give him the briefing anyway? I don't think so. It is essentially up to the president to decide to give that briefing to his successor. Uh, The president decides what is classified and what can be shared and declassified. There may be ways sort of informally in some of these transition interactions, if they start to happen, that the Biden team can be brought up to speed on certain issues. And many, if I think not all of the members of that intelligence community transition team all have security clearances. Many of them were in recent senior positions in government as of a few years ago. But there's no real way for the director of national intelligence's office to just give Biden the PDB without Trump permitting it.
0: It's worth noting, though, that the Biden team has repeatedly downplayed the difficulties of the transition. They've said that this will all be OK. Is there truth to that? Might this all be OK from a national security perspective?
2: Probably. The PDB itself, it has this almost mythic status. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is stuff that, frankly, you would see in the news. You know, if the president... Because of
0: reporters to- like you.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I flatter <laughs> myself. Right. But it's a useful document. But the things that Joe Biden really wants to know right now are, okay, where do we have covert action going on? Where do we have stuff that's maybe not even acknowledged? Those aren't necessarily things that would be in the PDB. That's why it's important that they be getting these kinds of details or the President Trump, frankly, tells President Biden about them. I think that their confidence on the Biden team that this is not really a big deal is partly informed from the fact that He has so many people who have served in senior national security positions, and they've been waiting for four years to get back in there. They have ideas, they have plans, they have their own contacts. And other governments. I think they're going to have a pretty good and robust sense of the state of affairs in the world, not the most recent classified intelligence, but sometimes that stuff's even less revealing than we might like to think it is.
0: All right, I want to move on to some of the personnel pieces of this story that we've seen unfold over the past few days. On Monday, days after Biden won the presidency, Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper. How would you describe the relationship between Esther and Trump? What led up to this firing?
2: It was a very tense relationship. There are kind of two proximate causes, I think, of his dismissal. One was his opposition kind of a bit after the fact of deploying forces during the protests over the summer in Lafayette Square, where President Trump will remember, you know, forces kind of gassed the protesters there who were protesting George Floyd's death and police brutality. And so he could do a photo op in front of the church across from the White House, as per had said this was the wrong thing to do. That really upset the president. Esper has also, I think, with other top generals in the Pentagon, been opposed to a rapid pullout of troops from Syria and Afghanistan. And President Trump has been really determined to do that because he feels that it's a campaign promise that he made. And there's some reporting to indicate that he wants to do that before he leaves. And so that this may also have been sort of the last straw Esper Trump sees as somebody who has slow-rolled a lot of his orders. He sees him as kind of an oppositional force, if you will. And for the president, if you're not expressly doing what he commanded you to do, I think that that animosity builds up. And with Esper, I think he just saw him as somebody who wasn't really looking out for the president's best political interests, and that's why he had to go. He had been rumored to be of on the chopping block for quite some time. And I'm pretty sure that this firing didn't come as a surprise to him.
0: I'm just not sure I understand why Trump would fire Esper with basically two months potentially left on the job here as his administration comes to an end. Why was it so important to Trump to do this? And why bother doing it now with only two months left?
2: Yeah, you're asking the question that we're all asking right now, and we're trying to figure the answers. So one possible answer is, frankly, just spite, that this may be a period where President Trump is taking revenge on people who he sees as either his enemies or people who have blocked him, and he wants to have the pleasure of humiliating the Secretary of Defense in this way. We know that he has done this with other cabinet secretaries, as well, fired them quite unceremoniously by tweet. There's also some speculation that what he's trying to do here is put people in place who will more rapidly accelerate some of the things that he wants to do in the last 70 days, possibly pulling troops out, possibly declassifying information from the Russia probe that he thinks will prove there was some Deep state conspiracy against him. There have been a lot of indications that some of the things that the White House would like to declassify have been getting kind of jammed up in the bureaucratic process. There are officials that he's removing that, you know, maybe in theory, now that they're out of the way, he could speed things up. And, you know, there's also some thinking that he was planning a big turnover anyway, even if he did win, and that he was going to start installing people that he felt were far more pliant and politically loyal to him. And so what we may be seeing here. Is just the plan that he always intended to implement if he won, and he's just kind of proceeding as if he did.
0: So because this is a podcast about presidential power, I understand that you're saying essentially Trump might use these next two months as president to exert his power over people to do things that Trump wants to see done, even in these final moments still just to get that last fight in.
2: I think that's right. Donald Trump is someone who always fights. I think he lives for that. And I don't expect him to go quietly in this final 70-day period. I don't think he wants to be physically removed by the Secret Service on January 20th. But I think we should expect him to essentially be lashing out and to be very active in these final 70 days and pushing very hard to get done the things that he feels – that his own officials prevented him from doing.
0: Another personnel issue in the intelligence world is happening over at the CIA. Trump is reportedly considering firing CIA Director Gina Haspel, in part because he wants some Russia-related information declassified, and Haspel has argued that doing so would would harm national security. In cases like this, how does the fact that the president is now a lame duck affect his ability to pressure agencies to do what he wants?
2: I think his influence is actually weaker than it would be in a normal period. Taking the CIA Director Gina Haspel is a good example. From my reporting, she intended to leave at the end of his administration one way or another, whether it was just resigning or making way for a new director or being fired. There's not much time left. She's at the end of her career. I think she has no problems, you know, going out with her head held high. What can the president really do in these final 70 days? Now, Her mission there has been to insulate the agency from a lot of his whims and his lashing out. So I suspect she'll want to keep doing that. But because he's a lame duck president, and this is true for really any agency head, that influence wanes. These people in these senior cabinet positions are going to leave at the end of his administration anyway and make way for the new president. Firing somebody unceremoniously, that may be something that some of these officials want to avoid. But frankly, if you're Esper or Gina Haspel, you understand that the establishment knows what Trump is doing. And you're going to have the respect of people probably more than you're going to have the score, their scorn. People are going to feel sympathy, if you're Gina Haspel, for being fired. It's a very strange thing that there are actually people in the CIA right now who have a lot of concerns and problems with the way she's managed the agency. If the president fires her, in some ways he kind of makes her a hero. So I think in his mind he's punishing these people, but he's not hurting them to the level I think that he might believe he is.
0: I've been asking you mostly about how all of this is playing out here in the U.S., but I'm curious, too, how it's all perceived abroad. Specifically, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked this week whether the State Department was participating in the transition, and he said they were planning for a second term of the Trump administration. Yet Biden has already begun making calls to foreign leaders as the president-elect, and those leaders have publicly congratulated him on his win as well. So what kind of national security challenges does this sort of dual messaging pose for the U.S.?
2: I think messaging is part of it, right? I mean, there is a sense that the U.S. government is kind of a mess right now. It's it's in this sort of period of chaos. But the transition proceeds. And as you noted, these foreign leaders are reaching out to Joe Biden and saying, you're the president-elect. You're the guy we're going to do business with. And that continues as normal. Foreign governments, I mean, you know, as a rule, stay out of our domestic politics, but they pay extremely close attention to them. I mean, I know from just talking to sources of mine and other governments, they're planning for Biden to be the person that they deal with, but they're sort of watching this enormously tumultuous period, and they're kind of both a little bit aghast because they think, you know, this is not how things are normally done, but they're also not surprised because this is exactly how Trump has operated for four years, and by now they're kind of used to it. From the standpoint of the orderly and peaceful transition of power, I thought it was a very encouraging thing that so many foreign governments did the thing which even President Trump won't do, which is to recognize Joe Biden as the president-elect. I think that speaks to stability and to continuity. Secretary Pompeo's statement was baffling and frankly outrageous. Even if he thought that he was joking, it's not funny to have the senior most cabinet official essentially saying we are planning as if Donald Trump is going to be here on January 20th at this period of maximum tension that we're in right now, that doesn't send a great message to our allies. At the same time, I'm sure many of them are sort of looking at what Pompeo said and kind of shaking their heads and rolling their eyes and thinking, well, you know, you're not going to be here on January 20th, so let's just move on.
0: There's a lot of different threads here. What have your sources in the intelligence community told you that they're most concerned about in this delayed transition process?
2: Their concerns are, I think, twofold. One, are more systemic. The idea that by not conceding and insisting that there was some kind of voter fraud for which there is no evidence, that the president will convince millions, tens of millions of people that Joe Biden isn't the legitimate president and they're deeply worried about the systemic strain that that puts on our democracy. I mean, that's a fairly existential problem. There are others who worry about on a kind of more tactical level, the kinds of things that he could do in the next 70 or so days? Could he start recklessly declassifying information that might expose sources and methods of intelligence? That could be really bad. Could he launch some kind of ill-advised military action? There's worry about that. Would he try and use military forces to go onto the streets to quell protests or somehow project some kind of image of law and order, as he likes to say? There's concern about that as well. And While no one has said to me, I think Donald Trump is going to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president on January 20th, I have to say that every day that goes by and I talk to sources, the possibility starts to creep into their mind just a little bit more that he might do something genuinely crazy. (laughs) I don't know what other word to apply to it. That's kind of where we are right now. These are people who are used to seeing a peaceful transition and transfer of power. And what we're having right now is not that. And the longer it goes on like this... I think the more concerned that they become that we might see something truly dangerous happen.
0: And once he leaves office, presuming he does, in fact, leave office, are there risks in the fact that he now has a lot of intelligence knowledge that he's built up over time? Is there concern he could use that in some way that could harm our national security?
2: Yeah, this is another thing current and former officials I've been talking to in the past couple of weeks worry that because he has a history of carelessly, even inadvertently declassifying information that has jeopardized sources and methods, that he might continue doing that, you know, in a speech or at a dinner that he's attending, will he start bragging about things that he knows? Will he accidentally let something slip that he doesn't think is that revealing, but that an adversary might see as kind of a missing puzzle piece they've been looking for? And, you know, candidly, there are those who say, look, he is massively in debt. This information that he has in his head could be valuable. Do we have to consider the prospect of the president might, if not outright sell information that's classified, might feel inclined to share it with people with whom he has a business relationship as some kind of, you know, quid pro quo. People are really worried about this right now. And again, I don't think that they would be if he didn't have a history of violating norms and selectively and recklessly declassifying information. If he had behaved like a normal president, frankly, with regards to all of this sensitive information, you wouldn't have this kind of acute anxiety right now about what he's going to do as an ex-president and how he could continue to do damage to national security.
0: I want to wrap this up by just looking ahead a few weeks from now. In December, the Electoral College electors will cast their ballots for the president. It's that step that certifies the presidency for Joe Biden. Do you expect that if Trump is still pushing back at that point, or if there is some resistance from the Trump administration to move this transition forward after the results have been certified, that the intelligence community or the government apparatus at large can really step in to take matters into their own hands? Or will we still sort of be awaiting word from Trump to get this transition in process?
2: I think the latter. I think the executive branch and particularly the national security agencies take very seriously that they are there to take orders from elected officials. And particularly in the intelligence community and the military, it's almost impossible to imagine that they would step forward and kind of collectively say, Mr. President, you're not going along with this. The people have spoken. We're taking over. And it's just something that they're not prepared to do. I think they ultimately have faith in the system, although it may be eroding every day, but they're going to believe very strongly that the Electoral College needs to certify. Congress needs to do what it does to accept those results and that the system has to work as designed. And I think that they would feel that if they were stepping in to try and circumvent that, that they would essentially be committing the same sins that they probably think the President Trump is right now by not letting the process go forward as normal.
0: All right, Shane. Well, we have December ahead of us and then January after that. So we will see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you like Can He Do That, I have a feeling you'll like another series from The Washington Post. The Post is bringing you an Amazon original podcast miniseries, drawing on the experience and insight of The Post's reporting staff and experts to retell the moments that defined the 2020 election. In this series, called The Next Four Years, reporter Eugene Scott tells the story of how we got here and unpacks what the outcome of the election means for the future of our divided country. The Next Four Years from The Washington Post premieres Friday, November 6th, exclusively on Amazon Music. And just one more thing before you go. By now you've probably heard of the Presidential Podcast. It's a podcast from the Washington Post by my colleague Lillian Cunningham. She made it back in 2016 when she interviewed tons of presidential historians and created an episode on the life of each and every American president. Well, now she has a brand new, fascinating episode on Joe Biden and his place in the arc of American history. You can listen at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential or just search for Presidential Podcast on any of your favorite platforms. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.